This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by ArtCloud. Trusted by thousands of galleries, artists, and collectors worldwide, ArtCloud's all-in-one art management solution, an integrated art marketplace, is the fastest growing of its kind. Use ArtCloud's marketplace to discover and buy exceptional pieces tailored for your taste, share your favorites with friends and fellow art enthusiasts, and even use the app to visualize artwork in your own space. If you're an artist or gallery, plug into ArtCloud's best-in-class art management platform, including easy-to-use client inventory management, sales assistance, and the opportunity to grow your business by listing your art on ArtCloud's booming marketplace. Are you ready to explore ArtCloud? Registration's free, so sign up now on artcloud.com. That's spelled A-R-T-C-L-D.com. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. In this week's episode, we're joined by Michael Finlay, director of Aquavella Galleries in New York City and author of the new book, Seen Slowly, Looking at Modern Art. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Adam, it's my pleasure. In your book, you write about how people should see art versus how they actually do now. What, in your view, is wrong or incorrect with how people see art now, and how should they be doing it? Well, I don't think it's really a question of rules. It's a question of what is our goal, and if our goal is enjoyment, and if our goal is engagement, I believe that we can do this without much of the apparatus that the art world or the art market implies to the average gallery goer that they need. I see hundreds, if not thousands of people milling through museums and art fairs and galleries, um, looking at works only if they have read the label first and if the label has told them something about the work that they feel merits their attention, taking photographs of works instead of looking at them, listening to audio guides of other people's opinions, telling them about the work as they are looking at it. One of the principal tenets of this book is that why not think about modern art in the same way that we think about music? I have a very wide range of uh, interest and enjoyment in music. I know nothing about it. I'm not musical. I don't play an instrument. I'm not a musicologist. And yet I seem to be able to make pretty good judgments for myself about the kinds of things I want to listen to by listening to them. And I do it without reading a great deal about music. I do it actually without listening to a lot of other people talking about music, although somebody can suggest something to me and I may follow that suggestion. When it comes to modern art, why do we think that we need so much help? That's the question I pose. We don't. What we need is an open mind. We need uh, some patience. And that's very important. The reason I call it seeing slowly is because when we look at something, when we glance at something, when we're speeding through a blockbuster exhibition, we look at a painting for a few seconds. At that moment, most of the information 
is not coming to our brain from our eyes. It's already in our brain. It takes at least 30 seconds or a minute before we, we're actually looking at only the work of art. And the information running around our brain can, can subside. At that point, some engagement, some communication can take place. Whatever it is, abstract, figurative, it doesn't matter. Now, if you do that, you give it the benefit of the doubt, you're bored stiff, you move on. On the other hand, you might be drawn in. One of the things I recommend people do, instead of going and following the curator's rules, in other words, you begin at the beginning and this is the chronology and you've got to look at this painting, then read the wall label and then look at the texts and then look at this other painting, walk into the middle of the room. Look around the walls from the middle of the, of the gallery room. I bet you something is going to say, hey, come over, look at me. Something is going to tell you to look at it. And go and look at that one. It may, it may not be the most famous painting in the room. It may, mo- may not be the most expensive painting in the room. Unfortunately, the monetized culture that we live in compels people to look for things that they believe now to be expensive or famous because we, we live in this kind of cycle of, of celebritydom, regardless of whether it's art or, or anything else. And one of my prescriptions to break that is simply to look for what you don't know, not what you do know, and pay no attention to the wall label. It's, it's interesting. When I was hearing your response, which was really insightful, I was th- initially I thought it's really applicable to people who don't know that much about modern art. Maybe they're intimidated by it, um, in particular abstract art, and they want want some advice on how they can really understand it and how they should view things. But listening to you more and more, it seems like your audience or who you are targeting in your book is really not only just people who are new or not really in the art world, but also those within the art world and the art market. Um, is, is that the case? Some of the behaviors you're describing are maybe even more applicable to them than individuals who just visit a museum a few times a year. I, that, that's very interesting you said that because my aim in the book, whether I will accomplish it or not, is to reach what Jed Paul described in, a, in a, uh, an article he wrote about Jeff Koons as the average museum goer, whoever that is, Right. I want to reach the average museum goer, the person who exactly, as you said, is intimidated by the art world, is intimidated by what is suggested through the media, perhaps, by what somebody like I do or what a curator does or or what you do. I want to reach those people. Ironically, because I'm in the art world, my publisher is an art publisher, the book, in a way, has to find its way through the art world to get out of it. I have had, since it was published a few weeks ago, some very gratifying comments from, among other people, artists. I had, I had somebody I did not know very well, an accomplished artist, uh, call me up the other day and say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm going to museums differently now. And this is someone who doesn't need my advice at all. 
you know, he's a maker of these things. So I think this can apply to everybody. Um, I spent 53 years as an art dealer, and I try still to stop myself when I'm traveling, when I have the opportunity, you know, to visit a, a museum in a foreign land, to see works of art by emerging artists or established artists, I, I try to apply these principles. I'm not always successful. But when I do, it's very gratifying. One area I do want to ask you about is, and you probably observe it not only at art fairs, museums, but even at Aquavella, is the uh, really the incredible surge in use of Instagram in the art world, and even social media more generally. You referenced briefly in your first answer about taking pictures. Obviously, that's happening so much more um, with the use of Instagram and social media. How do you think social media is changing the way we consume art? And in your view, is it a positive or negative? Or, or maybe there's, it's a little bit of both. It's very much a mixed blessing. Um, I have been for two weeks at Michael Alistair Findlay. I have an Instagram account. I have now slightly more followers than my puppy, okay? <laughs> um, so I'm just beginning. <laughs> Um, I do receive and have provided information about the things I like to look at on Instagram. So as far as having conversations about, did you see, maybe you should look at, it's very, very useful. What I think is very destructive is the use of the smartphone to substitute for personal engagement and memory. For instance, Aquavella's booth at an art fair, we have a wide selection of artists. Most of their names would be known to a collector. Two or three of the names are known to a wider public. Let's say Picasso, Warhol, and Basquiat. So the public filters through, and what they do is, many, many people, they look at the label, and if they see the name Warhol, they see the name Basquiat, they see the name Picasso, they, they just take a photograph of, of, of what is next to the label. They see it through their phone. They don't actually look at the painting. They take a photograph of it and they move on. They haven't looked at it. They haven't looked at it with a naked eye, certainly. And they've only looked at it for a split second long enough to take the shutter on their phone. Now, what happens to that image? I don't know. There are hundreds and mil upon millions of them, right? Are they poured over later that night? Are they shared on Instagram? Maybe. But the person who has taken that photograph has substituted the smartphone for their own experience and memory. They will not have a memory of that work of art. They have used their phone to take that memory. So they don't have it, and they haven't engaged with it at all. So I would describe it, if I can, politely, as a prophylactic. It is something that has prevented the conception of some kind of organic feeling that could occur 
between the viewer and the painting. That organic feeling can only occur if you're looking at it for more than a few seconds. I'm not talking about 15 minutes. I'm talking about 30 seconds, even, even one minute with the naked eye and without talking and just saying, what am I looking at? How do I feel about it? But to go back to your question, it seems to me that we are using our capacity to photograph everything, to photograph our life as it's happening, and then to, in a sense, transmit our life as it's happening, you know, into cyberspace. And actually, we're not then in our life. We're, we're absent from it. We're, when we take a photograph of that Warhol, that Picasso, that, that Basquiat, ironically, we are, we are distancing ourselves from it. And yet our friends think, wow, that's fantastic. Oh, she was at the Hong Kong Art Fair and she saw that painting. But she didn't see that painting. She took a photograph of it. Does that make any sense? Yes, that it makes a, a, too much sense, unfortunately. <laughs> and yeah, so you, you're a director at Aquavella Galleries, as we mentioned, one of the top galleries in the world. How does your advice in your new book about seeing art transfer over to when collectors are considering buying an artwork from your gallery or from somewhere else? Uh, yeah, my book is, the first book I wrote, The Value of Art, is probably a book that, that may give um, you know some some information to and, and, and about collectors, but collectors have taught me serious collectors, uh, and I don't mean serious in terms of uh, amount of money. I'm talking about the level of engagement. Serious collectors look first, and then they ask a lot of very important questions, right? I should be able to answer those questions. The questions may be about art history. The questions may be about um, the medium of the work. The question certainly should be, you know, why is, why is it this price? The problem today is often the collector or their advisor or their consultant wants to ask all of those questions or have all of those questions answered before they've looked at the painting before they've looked at the work of art. I learn from collectors who look first. And if they don't like it, they don't need to ask any questions. If they don't like it, they might say to me, you've got something else? And I could show them a work by an artist that they weren't considering, and they might like that. So there's a dialogue, and the dialogue happens in the presence of works of art. The dialogue doesn't happen, you know, uh, texting backwards and forwards between their art advisor because they're too busy to come in and look at the painting. So it sounds so basic, but step one, look at the painting in the flesh, the real thing, then proceed from there. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, all of your insights you provide us with today um, are really incredible. And I think hopefully all of our listeners will look at art a bit differently as a result of hearing you. Um, we appreciate you coming on. And of course, your new book, Seen Slowly Looking at Modern Art, is available wherever you can buy books, especially Amazon. And as you just mentioned, you're new to Instagram. Go ahead and tell us that Instagram username again so our listeners can follow you. 
at Michael Alistair Findlay. That's Alistair spelled A-L-I-S-T-A-I-R, all one word. Thank you, Adam. This has been a great pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks so much again, Michael. We appreciate it. This week's episode of the podcast was brought to you by ArtCloud and the Sotheby's Institute of Art. ArtCloud's trusted by thousands of galleries, artists, and collectors worldwide. Its all-in-one art management solution, an integrated art marketplace, is the fastest growing of its kind. You can use ArtCloud's marketplace to discover and buy exceptional pieces tailored for your taste, share your favorites with friends and fellow art enthusiasts, and even use the app to visualize artwork in your own space. So if you're an artist or gallery, plug into ArtCloud's best-in-class art management platform, including easy-to-use client inventory management, sales assistance, and the opportunity to grow your business by listing your art on ArtCloud's booming marketplace. So are you ready to explore ArtCloud? Registration's free, so sign up now at artcloud.com. That's spelled A-R-T-C-L-D.com.